the doorbell's usually D major. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Hearing in Colour with Matt Simon. Steve is a friend of mine from Guitar College. He's a London-based musician and has perfect pitch. So we'll be discussing that and comparing how I perceive music to how he perceives it. We go quite deep on music theory and then talk about how we individually approach the guitar and the bass. All right, Steve, uh, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. So you are unique, not unique, um, special because uh, you have perfect pitch which is an unusual ability, um, which people don't know, means that you can hear a sound and then just know what the correct note is. So if someone played a note, you'd say that's a B flat or it's an F and also whether it's in tune as well. So this can be very useful as a musician, obviously, but it can also be sometimes a hindrance because if something is out of tune, it must be like nails on a blackboard to you. Or if a whole song is out of tune or someone is, then it's the whole thing must sound awkward. Whereas for me, I don't quite have that. So if you're... Um, for me, if the whole song is out of tune, but all out of tune with itself, it's fine. But you would, if anything is out of tune, it must be just horrendous for you. Well, this is a common misconception, I think, of perfect pitch sufferers. And I say sufferers intentionally. Um, I, it doesn't bother me. Honestly, if the song is halfway between E and F, but it, like you say, it's all perfectly within tune within itself, then... I'm not bothered. It it doesn't annoy me. Like, I mean, I've answered this question a lot of times to students and they're like, well, oh, if that's out of tune, doesn't it annoy you? I'm like, but doesn't it annoy everyone if the guitar's out of tune? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but so, I mean, like, more things are out of tune for you, though. More, well, yes and no, because like the only thing that if a song is halfway between E and E flat or something like that, is that it just makes it harder to, to distinguish which one it is. So, like, I mean, I've got the right, guitar okay, yeah. and, like, that's my usual E chord, so E flat, because I like to tune into E flat. Um, but, like, if I heard, I know that's E flat, and I know that's E, but I'm thinking of it as F in my head at the moment, because I'm in E flat. So it's F so on the fretboard for you? It's F on the fretboard, like... Yes, but obviously I'm playing E. So all that does is it's kind of between E flat and E. And I can hear that it's between E flat and E. So therefore it makes the decision, which one is it, a lot harder because it's obviously equidistant between the two. So it's neither closer to not one of them. So when I hear that, I go, oh, it's halfway between E and E flat and E. It's not really an emotional annoyance. It's just a scientific fact, you know, physical fact, really, that frequencies, we know A is 440, we know the A below it is 220, they're just numbers. So, like, I guess in my head, I've thought about this quite a bit, like, I'm doing myself a disservice by tuning my guitar down to E-flat. I'm making myself work harder. Because I know that that's E-flat. But I have to tell myself it's E. Because it is E. And all those are relative. So I feel like when I go to a function gig and I inevitably have a discussion, <coughs> argument with the um, bass player and he turns up with a six-string bass and he's oh, don't worry about it. I'll just tune into standard tuning. And I'm just like, sorry, no, not acceptable. Does, does not work because 
then we have this problem of which key is it? And I shout G and you play G, but then you've got to work it out in your head that I mean F sharp. And then anything that like would involve an open string, I guess like the songs that we're mentioning later on as well, like the, you're just making it more difficult for yourself. And I guess it's like in that, I'm assuming that it's important that everyone on stage is tuned into the same tuning. Yeah, just to clarify a little bit on that. So, for example, if you play guitar in standard tuning, fret one is an F chord, and that sounds like an F. But then if you retune your guitar, it looks like an F to you, but then it actually would sound like a different chord. So you have this kind of disconnect where, like, you know it's one shape, but it's actually something else. Yeah, I mean, now with a capo on the first fret, I can hear that's definitely E, A, D, G, and C. And they sound very... They sound very white to me. I know you see in colour, but sorry. Very white, here, that's a very interesting thing to say. Well, yeah, but again, white in relation to the fact that C major is a white key. Uh, on a piano, you mean? Yeah, on a piano. So black and white. Um, and I guess the the more obvious keys, you know, G major, uh, F, the one flat keys, they're still white to me. D is still a white key. The two flats that's b flat isn't it um yeah b flat it's a tricky one this is where the black and white key structure thing falls down because c major completely white f sharp or g flat you know mostly black notes so that's why it's the black key or i guess i'm not alone in calling it the black key or a white key i don't think but whether that just sends out a general color sort of thing into my mind going I hear it more black than white therefore it must be a, a sharp or a flat key yeah watching a video um and guy was breaking down jump by Van Halen which is in the key of C so it uses all the white notes and then he was trying to analyze how Van Halen does the key changes and so for the solo part of that song is in B flat minor which uses a lot of black notes and the guy had worked out that a lot of his hit singles when he wanted to change key or change feel he'd literally go from like white notes into black ones that was the theory he worked out that he was doing there's something in that as well, like um, my example is not jump, but is who wants to be a millionaire um, in a sense that most people are aware of that sort of while the questions are being asked and, you know, the final answer stage and that sort of. And then that sort of when it kind of hits the final answer and then if you get it wrong, you hit with B minor. It's like, whoa. I mean, even now it's just sent shivers down my sort of spine going, that is a key change that is like powerful in some way. What is, I mean, we can explain it away by going C minor, B minor. You're just going down a fret. Yeah, that is what you're doing. But if you look at it on a circle of fifths, C minor is uh, three o'clock on the flat side. B minor is two o'clock on the sharp side. So you've actually gone way around the key thing. And it seems to me like when you go towards the, the other side, if you're changing keys from C minor to F minor, you're going from three to four flats. That's a, a brighter key change. If you go negatively and go to two flats, one flat, no flats, one sharp, two sharps, you're going darker. So actually the key change is related to the circle of fifths for me. Interesting, yeah. Um, so just quickly, so the like jarring key change, um, 
in terms of music theory, it's they're quite unrelated keys. So it's um it can be done, but to do it that quickly is quite jarring and it's not um sort of a classical it's stepping towards it. Um yeah, and that's another thing with the um the circle of fifths. Yeah, so some people consider, yeah, some keys, if you're adding sharps, you're kind of like brightening the sound of the music. And then if you go towards the flats, it kind of like darkens it a little bit. It does, and that supports what I believe most guitar teachers like you and I who taught in schools peripatetically that that's kind of how modes are useful from the major scale because you start with the Lydian and that's got the sharp in it and you end down at Locrian and that's got all the flats in it and it's like one sharp nothing one flat two flat three flat four flat five flat and it's like the same sort of thing going actually it's more useful to put the theory into a better order that's not necessarily I guess, would you describe it as chronological or sequential order? Probably C, D, E, F, G, sort of, rather than going, well, we're going to start with a four and then we'll go to the one, then we'll go to the five, then we'll go to the, you know, all this sort of stuff for the Yeah, I see it as well. Um, yeah, so from the modes, so like going from a very dark, kind of awkward sound at Locrian and then like progressively getting lighter and um, a bit brighter. And they, they do go from like the minor keys up to the major ones. So it's like a sort of almost objectively happier sounds, but... Um, yeah, you sort of order it in that way. So it's like kind of different colors. So like Lydian is like a very kind of like sparkly, hopeful kind of sound, whereas the, the, the lower ones are definitely they've got sort of a darkness to it. And it's quite well, hard yeah. to use them, a darker sound in a very happy way. It just doesn't quite work. Well, again, it's a dark sound, isn't it? I mean, you can't make the diminished scale sound happy. But again, it's interesting that like the the way we're describing it, describing it as like dark and bright and um, it's almost like a visual thing. Yeah, over the years, I've found that like music is one of these subject areas where it's quite strange related to other industries because you don't have to be a professional to feel the effects of musical theory. You don't have to be a musician to experience a key change like I don't know Celine Dion or um, one of her songs is regarded as the most not beautiful but like luxurious or classy key change like that's ever happened in pop music and I think she ends up singing an F that's over a D minor so it's the minor third and then bam the key goes down a semitone to D flat major and now she's singing a major third and it's like whoa that was a minor that became major and it, it like i can explain it away but i still feel the same as somebody who has no idea about what d flat is i think yeah partly um a musical theory is a jargon it's a language that makes things easier um just to communicate with other people because you can say oh right i want the minor sound with that like natural six flavor and the kind of like smooth jazzy sound or you could just say i want the dorian mode so it's an easy way to communicate but yeah like you said it's very interesting how people perceive it very differently because it's objectively the same thing like you can play an f over a, a d bass note and that's a minor third but then some people might think oh that's quite a sad sound some people might think oh it's not spicy enough some people might think oh it's purple you know it's very different how people experience the same objective thing so subjectively differently yeah and i guess that to me is the difference between science and art as well is that with science it kind of usually the best thing to do is to follow the rule. Whereas with music and art, you have to understand the rule in order to then break it in a convincing way that makes your unique thing, sound, look, painting, whatever it is. So 
I feel that knowing the rules is useful, but not super necessary. But if you know the rules, then you know what you're treading over. And it's very easy to assess and resort like other things. Like one of my songs on my album, getting into sort of talking about composition, I suppose now, is um, I try and put it at quite a simplistic uh, rhythm guitar part. All of my album was written on acoustic guitar. One of the main ideas being that I liked the, the sentiment of a song like Back in Black, you know, straight away. Twiddly, twiddly, twiddly that you can't play when you're a beginner, but you can play E, D and A fairly successfully because they're the first things that anyone knows. And I like the idea of writing an album where it would be fully possible to play along to it with nothing more than acoustic guitar and a capo. So no, no extra tricks, no real alternate tunings. I mean, you can still tune an acoustic guitar down to E flat. That's not hard. You could put a capo back on it to play on the ones that are in E, you know, for the next few tracks or what have you. But so uh, the biggest, well, biggest, the song I like the most and I think is the best on the album is in the key of A flat major. And it's like based around typical GDA sort of chord progression. So I guess we're in a Mixolydian territory. And I start with A7 as well. And then you're into the chord progression. But then on the second time, I'm very aware that my theory brain is going, don't just play GDNA again, don't just play GDNA. So then, because I know the theory of the modes, I'm like, well, that's Mixolydian, so that's G, D, and A. So what happens if I want to go darker? Because I'm a big heavy metal fan, and I really enjoy hearing metal intervals, flat twos, flat fives, first four notes of a superlocrian scale, anything that doesn't involve a natural two, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm like, how can I get metal guitar theory into a pop song? So... I found that it would be better to try and sneak a Phrygian mode into the song somehow. Um, I'm not going to play a Latin, uh, sort of Spanish-y, acoustic-y style thing, because it's not that song. It's kind of like an American country rock song, really. But then instead of G and D, you've got two other chords. So A and the Phrygian gives you an option of the flat two and the flat six, which would then be F and B flat. So then the chord progression expands to G, D, A. So I've kind of theoretically chosen that scale for those two chords. Yeah, it gives and it a I'm darker edge just to on that bass that you were starting from. Yeah, I'm I'm big in composition. I'm big on the word development like repetition of an idea is not development and so even within that chord progression i've developed the g and d from mixolydian a few stages darker into phrygian there's still two chords they are the ones that suggest that i mean you could really go a bit too far with it and be like are all of those notes f a c in the key of a major well the c isn't but you know back to sean baxter's acceptable levels of dissonance i think we remember like, which is subjective the, isn't it 
Yeah, and this kind of goes into another thing where it's like if all of your chord progression is 100% diatonic, there is no fly in the ointment to start being attracted to why it sounds gritty or what's the thing that isn't supposed to be there. And I guess I'm pushing the F down to like the flat six, but also there's a minor third in there as well according to the root notes so my head's exploding with theory at this point and i've only wrote six chords yeah it's i'm the same um because if i look at a chord say like an e minor chords um with my theory knowledge i can think right what direction do i want to take this in do i want to have like a, a soft dark sound or do i want to go like super spanish dark or like um a bit sparkly or a bit kind of like um mixolydian so it's like 90s kind of like alt rock kind of stuff so use all these different options and then you think well which direction i want to go but that's where the theory helps you but again it's yeah. interesting that you're saying um darkness because some um adam lady's got quite a good video on this uh someone else um because i've watched quite a few about the synesthesia thing and some cultures they will say that some notes are like lower and some are higher but then other countries will describe it as thicker or thinner notes or bright for the top ones so it's um the language can um affect that as well I guess you mean like thicker in terms of lower and yeah, bass notes. Yeah, yeah. So instead of like physically placing it lower to higher, they'll think that's thicker and that's thinner. So it's an interesting way of thinking. Well, it does translate into the guitar strings, doesn't it? The thickery and the thinnery, that sort of. Yeah, but it does seem to have a bit more weight, doesn't it? Like the the left hand of a piano, like the low notes do have a bit more weight. Well, they do, they do because sound. It's, not, it's not symmetrical in the way that we know that you can cluster up notes like really quite easily up the top. It's almost Mr. Brightside, that isn't it? But like then when you're playing down at the bottom, that sort of, where you've got the beats wobbling all the way through yeah. it and that sort of thing. Like why you can't play triads on the uh, within one octave on a bass guitar. And you're like, well, why is it that that doesn't work? But then it does work higher up and it's because it's not, it's not linear, it's not equal, it's like, well, I guess we know that from frequencies and 440 hertz, 220, 110, 55. And being someone who's quite into bass and I've got a subwoofer in my car, I'm quite aware of the frequency drop-off between, um, well, frequencies, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> this is quite strange to admit, but the car and my subwoofer was one of the zones that I mixed the album. Right. And that Which, car has a natural resonance depending on the physical size of it as well. So some notes will... Gears in it as well. Like I drive to the, the gig with the pulled PA, two guitars, lights, everything. So the gear is full, so there's no air to resonate. I know the difference between a full car and an empty boot. Um, I know the difference between the resonances of all the different keys of bass notes, which is why a lot of electronic music tends to be around G. An F and A flat because that's the one that excites the subwoofer the most. Yeah. I don't know what the number frequency is. I, I'm not that anal about it, um, but I relate it to keys. So yeah, there is a lot of physics and science in in it all. And do you because you play bass as well? When you're playing a song, do you view the song differently as a bass player? Like for myself, because I play bass as well. Um, I see uh, the drums as like the it's like almost like a house. So the drums is like the floor, like the foundation. The bass is very much locked into that. Then the middle instruments, we call them. So like uh, keyboards, rhythm guitars, they're like the walls of the house. And then on the top, you've got like the solos and lead vocals. 
So I kind of see the structure like that, but also if I'm the guitarist, I'm almost like looking down at the bass because I'm sort of placing myself there mentally. And then if I'm mm -hmm. playing bass, I'm almost like looking up at the same structure from a different point of view, because you, you should play slightly differently. I think it's playing bass has definitely helped my guitar playing because it's much more of a rhythmic thing. And, but I'm thinking in a slightly different way and also like really listening into that bass drum. But then I'm, you're playing a different role. I mean, if you're playing, um, say like in a punk band, the guitar part is very similar to the bass line, but something like a funk or jazz is very different element of the music. But I feel that I'm looking at the, the whole arrangement from a different point of view. Do you find that yourself? Totally, totally. Um, I think, I mean, I was a bass player before I was a six string guitar player. So I don't know whether that's the opposite for you. Um, but I, yeah, I went through bass first and then graduated onto guitar. So I think that my first love always will be the lower notes, which is why I play guitar more like a bass player. So even if I'm playing acoustic guitar on a, a covers gig at a pub or something, there's a lot of emphasis on... Um, you know, all that sort of... It's very bass note-oriented. The yeah. chords are just... They just highlight what's going on, really. I'm more dedicated to the bass line. So when I play, not that I've done many bass gigs recently, but I have done a fair few weddings on bass and backing vocals. And you're right, it's a completely different job. Um, my brother, who's a consultant, an aesthetist, but also a musician who plays guitar and bass, he equates the bass player in the band to being the anaesthetist in the hospital theatre because... I think he's right, actually, in a sense that you don't so much notice a good bass player, but you really notice a bad one. And if it's missing as well. If it's missing, yeah, yeah. and the, the patient's like wide awake and he should be asleep or whatever. You know? But yeah, I mean, for me, bass playing, even though you're not, you know, giving it all the sort of solos and you're not the lead singer, you're not the, the lead guitar player, you still wield the biggest instrument, the biggest impact on stage because the bass player dictates what style the song, the song is. And the groove as well. Yeah, and the groove. So you can put the, the drums and the bass in, uh, the drums and the guitars and everyone else in, but you know, if, if the guitar, the bass player is just going, doo, 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 you start to go, all right, we're in ZZ Top Land or what have you, but it could be. And you're straight into the reggae thing or whatever. And it's like, you've got ultimate charge over what this sounds like. It's the momentum, isn't it? Mm. And so that's why I really enjoy like the bass guitar in itself. Like again, on my album, um, me and Bill, the engineer I worked with to mix it, uh, we both decided by 13 months of mixing that the bass player in my band is the best seat in the house. Right. I mean, yeah, I do like the, the different role. Um, for me, when I got to guitar college, I hadn't, really understood that properly as well i was actually talking to johan like a good friend and he was saying like even on acoustic guitar he's like matt you don't have the weight in it you're not really like landing so i played a bit of bass and a bit of guitar but it was only once he really explained that and i was like right okay now i get it so properly landing on the beats rhythmically and then yeah as a bass player you've got that you're in charge of the the momentum yeah because if you said if you got this like did it did it it's got a totally different movement to if you just do 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 or but but like waiting for it there's a lot of tension you can create by not playing as well 
I mean, even like the um, the standard eight bass notes. I mean, the ZZ Top feel. You could change so many fields, but not changing what what you're playing. Like that's you know standard. Everything's kind of equal, but then there's also very different to me. But then there's also which is also very different but i haven't changed what note i'm playing i'm still playing eight solid eight note eight just the length of the notes yeah but it's leaving those little gaps isn't it yeah which then gives the next note the push and the, the impact and then the difference between low and high like i find in um wedding band sort of bass playing there's so much more call to play higher um because I don't know whether you feel it, but there tends to be a point in the night where you just realise that when you're transitioning from intro to verse to chorus to verse to chorus, dynamically it's just flat. There's nothing happening. No, A bit like the, the perfect other example would be all right now. Bass player drops out in the verse. Why? So that when it comes back in at the chorus, it's got effect. So like for me, bass is quite interesting because you should be aware of the weight of the bass not the physical weight, but play the thing up high for the verse, a bit like beginning of Mr. Brightside. Ding, 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 back down to the low octave and you're in. Yeah. That sort, of, that sort of theory. I think the bass has a lot more influence and there's a lot more to say than a guitar in that way because you control ultimately how smooth, how lumpy, how high or how full or how low or how heavy or how light it is just by where you play that note yeah so one of my songs torn which is actually the intro music for this podcast the it's in drop d but the first verse i made sure the bass player played it higher up um so then when the second verse comes in he's like right down it gives like a massive punch into it it's completely different uh drive and it's like now there's a lot of weight but again it gives that progression so it's like oh this sounds quite cool then it's like yeah first comes in the second verse bam right now we're going and it's it's a massive difference it it does uh, boil into a different sort of area where I guess in decades or centuries gone by most musicians would be waiting for a conductor or an orchestra or tell me what to play and I'll play it you know whereas now we're into garage band rehearsals and you know people doing it for themselves like that sort of all right now period of you know what I'll just sit this section out doesn't seem to be as prevalent like because most people want to be playing their instrument as much as possible. So why would you stop yeah. in the middle of a song for an arrangement's sake? You know, it's like, it's quite a strange thought process, but like I, I've done that on one of my songs on my album as well. I tried to emulate pretty much a classic rock mentality, which was, you know, three chord trick in A again, well, A flat, but, you know, open A and tune down and do that thing where the guitar and drums start and then the bass comes in halfway through the verse and it's like now we're emulating classic rock sort of territory because the bass is important and needs to be introduced rather than just bringing it in from the start or whatever. So like I find it quite interesting nicking musical devices. I don't like to nick riffs because that's just cheap. Anyone can do that. That's why where you get problems like Ed Sheeran and the Marvin Gaye thing, and the I think there's a new one, the Dua Lipa Levitating yeah. thing. And, and you know, just if if you're not going to change it, then you deserve everything you get. You know, as far as I'm concerned. I think also the problem is there. It's that the songs are built from such basic building blocks that 
that's going to be so commonly used you know you haven't really explored anything so you've done it's almost like oh you've made like a ham sandwich but then instead of mustard you've used mayonnaise and be like well someone else has probably already done that you know you haven't really innovated by doing that so yeah and that's the issue and i think this is this is one of the things where we're heading to where like the the age of casual is definitely upon us and like things in the you know 40s 50s 60s was popular music was jazz popular music was jazz because it was full of theory and full of if you didn't know what you're doing couldn't read music you couldn't do it Whereas now we don't really see jazz as a mainstream thing. It's like we've got R&B and hip hop and Justin Bieber with his beat and his G, F sharp, E bass line. And that's it. That's the whole song. So it's all, all the theory has been removed. So there's not really anything to extrapolate from a song or something. And I remember having a chat with my granddad about 10 years ago, like before he died. And he grew up in the... 40s 1940s i think and he was talking about you know big bands count basie all this sort of stuff loads of orchestra stuff and it was it was full of clever musical crap that's like hard to understand and you need a bit of nows to be able to get past it whereas i mean if i think in popular terms you know there's a in my head there's quite a simple um transition between the beatles oasis and indie rock where we are now i mean there's literally formulas aren't there that people use to write songs like you have to hit the chorus by this timestamp, and then like here's the structure um it's literally a formula that's plugged in now because there's... But this, it, people feel a lot more bound by those formulas yeah. like we're hearing a musical discussion about spotify and the effects that it's had on the sort of right one two three four bam into the verse or whatever it's like You've got a one bar intro where, okay, but, but people will skip past my song if I don't get into it straight away. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're supposed to be the artist. You're supposed to be the one guiding the audience through it rather than going, oh, well, audience wants a short song. I'll give them a short song. All right. It's completely flipped over from people enjoying what musicians did to people demanding what the musicians do. And I think it's worse for society because of it. People go, we we need a quick song rather than something that's interesting. Like we will never hear another equivalent of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Seven minutes before verse one starts. <laughs> that's crazy. Seven. I mean, and then you get to the verse, it's like, remember when you were young, sun like the sun. And then you're into the chorus. It's only like four bars long. You know, it's not even a proper verse, but but it's still regarded as like, one of those songs that's like a masterpiece and a piece because they broke the rules, but they weren't even rules at those times. Because I think no there's one had two reasons for that. Um, see what you think of this opinion. So, partly is especially nowadays with production has become a lot more homogenized and it's a lot easier to um, match your sonic template to someone else's recording because you can pull it up on the computer and say, like, these are the top 10 of Spotify, I want to create this kind of sound. And it's much easier to get records out. You don't have to wait um, for a recording studio and a record company to publish it. You can put something out within a week, you know, from recording it. Um, so there's that. Then there's also like the, and leading into that, because the record companies don't want to take as much of a risk because um, there's less money in it. And so it was like, well, let's try and copy what's going on. So the fact that it is easy to copy something like someone, you could release a record this week and then within a week, other people can match that template, the sounds and have some copy things 
Um, it's much easier to do that, whereas, say, go back 20 or 30 years, people recording using different amps and different studios, and it's a lot harder to do that. And the turnaround and the accessibility is just not there. So I think it's a combination of those two things. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And also, like, where we're at with the development of the electric guitar as well, like, we're, we're not in an instrument class where it's been around for 500 years, like the, like the piano or, you know, something else, strings maybe. But like the development from the 1950s up to the early 2000s in what 70 years what we've managed to do with a guitar that was originally acoustic and nylon strung to turn it into steel string to then turn it into electric and then not only that but extend the scale mess about with the fretboard fanning uh the frets and everything and then seven eight nine ten strings whatever you like you know it's all the effects pedals as well to change that even more very much, yeah, the effects pedals. And like that's why I think the electric guitar is probably heralded as, I'm a bit biased, but the best instrument there is, you know, because it's so expressive and it instantly trumps a piano because of this. You can do that on a guitar, you can't do it on a piano. So it's that, like- That was a note bend, it didn't come through <laughs> quite clearly on the- oh, Yeah, I'll play it. Okay. Yeah, just a sort of, and some sort of string bending. And I think that's what allows the guitar, allows the person playing it to express every nuance of what they feel about that melody, rather than um, just like playing it piano style, which there's nothing wrong with. You know, it's like there's, if you don't put any bending or slides in it, then it to me sounds, hmm, this is going to probably controversial. It sounds beginnerish. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I like the distorted guitar more because it's a bit more like a violin. It's got a bit more rich harmonics in it. And um, you can do a lot more with the sounds. Like, again, you, once you've got that basic sound to use, you can then tweak it, hit the pick from a different angle. You can bend it differently, harmonics, and you can morph that sound a lot more than, say, a jazz guitar where they can't do as much because it's thicker strings you can't shape the sound as much but it's almost like i try and get it like a vocal sound when i'm playing leads like really get the nuance and when i'm thinking of different licks and things okay this will have this color a nuance and then like a bit smoother here and then like chop the edge off that just to really shape it almost like like a play-doh you're like carving it up into little bits yeah yeah agreed agreed and this is what like again we, in my head for like all the things that you can do with a guitar we, we haven't even mentioned the fact of like single coils versus humbuckers or you know that sort of sound as well there's just so many different things that you can tweak or change but like isn't it funny that especially with like heavier styles like modern metal sort of stuff it all seems to be pointing towards one perfect sound the studio sound you know, the, the DI'd, super decimated, no no noise, you know, everything noise suppressed and everything compressed to hell. Um, and that grindy dual rectifier sound. That, like, Again, because it's the... possible to copy that. Um, because if you were banned in New York and you heard a band in LA, say like in the mid 90s, like, oh, how do we get that sound? Are we in a different room, different mics, different amps? But now, yeah, with plugins and there's the certain sounds like the 5150 or the Mesa sounds like these kind of classic rhythm sounds and people can dial that in really easily to get very similar to that sound. And it's, yeah, almost like classic sound, but then there's less, um, 
maybe desire for innovation on that. Although um, I've got to admit for myself, that kind of like Petrucci rhythm sound is something I really like and works for me. Well, that really super sparkly, jangly, chorusy, clean. Uh, for me, I prefer the clean sound on a Strat. Because, um, I mean, I play an Ibanez, so the clean sound's not great on that. But um, when I'm recording, I use a strap for the clean parts and then the gem for the chunk. And then it's kind of best of both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do agree with you. For metal, there is not really anything better than a EMG81, I imagine. You know, the Metallica pickup or whatever it is. I've got a BC Rich Warlock that I record my metal stuff on, and it's got that pickup in it, and it sounds great. I, I wouldn't want it to sound different even though it sounds kind of stereotypically like that band, but if it works, you know. It's the best sound profile for getting that idea across because it's chunky, it's not too distorted, it's not, it's, you know, it's compressed. Uh, by compressed, I mean like dense and there's no like flapping around with it. It's just, that's the sound and you can play those riffs and that sound and express that feeling best through that sound. And if you try and yeah. say, take the guitar strings too low, the tuning goes too down, you just get kind of like, it doesn't really express the well, same yeah. thing and my my metal stuff i tune down three semitones so c sharp is what i like to play mostly influenced by limp biscuit i would say i really enjoyed the the keys on that album and because obviously most metal players play open strings so you get open c sharp f sharp that sort of thing so i think that's what's just translated from that and obviously following quite a lot of other heavy bands decapitated were and are ah, one of my favourites. And they started off two semitones down, and then on the third album went another semitone to C-sharp. It's like they've become one of my favourite bands. It's like, but dropping it down to B, it's a step too far. It doesn't, the, the chords don't ring out properly, and then, then you start getting down towards eight-string territory. And, yeah, you have to start thinking more like a single-note bass player rather than a chordal chug machine. Yeah, yeah there's less that you can do because it just becomes a bit of a mush down there. And you're in bass territory, really, aren't you? It always made me think about who'd be a heavy metal bass player. It's like the, the guys playing an eight-string guitar, the double bass drums. There's no room for me as a bass player in that band unless I start playing really high up the top because all the other guys are playing really low. Plus, with Animals as Leaders, like they're both, it's two eight-string guitar players, isn't it? There's no bass player in that band. Is that right? I don't think so. I need to check that, but I think so, I yeah. I play live, actually, at um, Scala in King's Cross a few years ago. Um, because if you put a bass on that, it's it's too low. You know, you you've got to match it or go an, an octave below that. It's just there's nothing there. It's just like yeah. farting out the sub. It is, and I guess my sugar are the other ones, aren't they? The eight string guitars and the five string bass. But then again, the the bass is kind of playing a role like a third guitar rather than a a warmth. There's no real warmth coming from that bass, which clean bass is very warm normally, isn't it? Yeah. Right, let's pivot on to some well-known songs. So um, with interviews now, I'm going to use two songs, which will be Superstition by Stevie Wonder and Summer of 69 by Brian Adams as Control, because most people know these songs, and especially most musicians. So Superstition, um, when you're playing the song, and it's just your personal opinion, how do you view the arrangement? Um, what are you thinking of? Um, for example, someone might say, well, here's the structure. I've got like verse, chorus, first chorus, and I've got to play my guitar part. How do you see what you're playing or do you not see anything or are you thinking these are the notes? What's your thought process when you are playing through that song? Okay, well, I'm assuming you mean like on stage while we're yeah. playing like performance. So again, 
separate it out into the two different ways of nine, ten piece band with four female singers, maybe, you know, keys, two guitars, all the extras trimmings would be handled in a very different way to when I play my three piece indie rock trio. Um, the first one is quite easy to get that out of the way. You just sit and you play <coughs> whatever, you know, you're chunking on the seven sharp nine riff or whatever and that's it it's rhythm guitar there's nothing much else you can do if you've got brass and keyboards and all this other stuff happening then you feel the pressure to just sit and play your part do what you're supposed to and it ends up sounding normally exactly like the record which is fine you know if, if you want that that's fine for me i more enjoy playing the three-piece lineup where the only melodic instruments on stage are the electric guitar and bass so you've got to then cover rhythm guitar, uh, clav. You've got to cover the brass parts. You've got to cover the the all the bits in between. So I kind of see it as um, I kind of see it as that my territory is everything that's not the bass. So I can choose whether I play the horn line, whether I play the clav line, whether I play the rhythm guitar part, and and actually that then gives me variety. So I guess um, when I'm first playing it, um, I'll start with the clav lick. Then I'll try and push that lick over to the bass player. So he comes in and starts playing low down, which then allows me to be free to play. So I've now got the bass playing the clav part and I'm playing the guitar part. And do you physically then, visualize the arrangement or see yourself spatially, or are you just thinking, this is the thing that I'm doing right now and I'm, because like, for example, if there's a chord progression um, like from the chorus, so it's like B, C, B, B flat, A, do you like see that? Um, or do you like, for the first chord, you're like, well, it's a B, so do you think I'm in the B chord or do you kind of see it as like a scrolling um, script going past? key key formulas i think um so you know root fifth flat six fifth flat five four or whatever it is you know and then if i think of it like that then if the singer wants to play it in a different key then all those formulas work in any key so it's like i try and extrapolate the intervals so not that I'm thinking flat four, flat five, or all this stuff when I'm playing it, because I've played it so many times now that it's muscle memory, but I can hear where it's going to the fifth or the fourth, and, and that's so the relative pitch is pretty good as well as the perfect pitch as well. And those two pretty much work together to ensure that you end up on the right thing. And how is your experience playing that song on bass different to when you're playing it on guitar? Your thought process and the visualization of the song and the structure. I I would probably approach it in the same way that I would expect a bass player playing with my band to deal with it, um, in a very more over the top way. So if I'm playing Superstition, I generally play most of the song around the twelfth fret, but I'll have an octave pedal on. Right. So I'll be playing the main riff. <laughs> Or even just if they want the standard plod, 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 or whatever bass line they want. So then, to me, playing the guitar part, the horn line and all of that is a lot harder to play on bass between frets three and seven. 
So it's shorter frets up at 12, stick the octave pedal on, you get an extra octave with a bass there as well. So it thickens out the sound. You get the low B of a five string without having to have it, you know, it's, and maybe a bit of distortion, slight overdrive or something to crunch up the sound. But I, I play more rather than less as a bass player. And also the, is, the strings are physically thicker, um, slightly harder to play, so put more energy into them. Do you feel this like more energy coming out or running through you as you're playing it? Does it? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a... Emotionally, is it different to play as a bass player? Yeah, there's something to be said for which string you play on with bass. So like the E on the second fret of the D string is vastly different to the seventh fret of the A as to the 12th on the E because the it gets more... I would say glubby as you go to a thicker string. Yeah. I mean, for want of a better word, but, you know, do you want zing or do you want glub? So I find that if you're playing with a high, high up the neck and on a thick, the thickest string you can manage, that will maximise the amount of rumble that will come out of the bass amp. So I might choose to switch to a different string playing the same note if I'm hearing that it's resonating a bit too much and there's a bit too too many bass frequencies coming out. I might play it down on the A string or go to the D string or something lower down. But again, this is not, it doesn't seem to be focusing on notes and thinking that's more just physical, physical sound characteristics, I suppose, isn't it? Like the physics of sound. It's a more physical instrument, isn't it? The bass, because it's heavier, there's more sound coming out. It hits you harder literally the sound waves coming out of the amp and that's what people are dancing to so it's there's more coming out of you or through you it's a different mm. approach isn't it yeah but i guess there's also something i try and do which is to not tread on people's toes i like to find holes in the arrangement so rarely will i play just the standard bass line that as it is on the track i will always add something in whether it's a rhythmic element or a little melodic element or something that goes yeah i know the main part but i think i want to make it better and that'll probably be annoying to quite a few singers or guitar players i would imagine but you know most of the time people seem to enjoy it so i think for me because yeah like as a guitarist yeah you're quite often filling little gaps in but then as a bass you're more the structure especially in a smaller band so um you're more like providing that structure or providing the gaps for other people I definitely don't have a problem if a guitarist is taking a solo and he wants 16 million bars repeating of it. Like, if I just have to play E, that's fine. You know, he's a bass player. You can go and look around the audience. You can check out the hot girls and all this sort of stuff. And, oh, you're still playing? Right, cool, fine. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a different job, you know. it's And also, like say, depending on the size of the stage, you might be less likely to have stuff spilled on you as well. If yes. you're a bass player, a bit further back, a bit less to deal with, which is good. All right, so moving on to another song, uh, Summer of 69, which uh, most people do know. Um, do you feel, again, when you're playing through this song, because the guitar part in Superstition is very thin sound, like the funky, like it's very, tick, 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 very small, whereas Summer of 69 has got that classic 80s rock sound, a very chunky um, sound, and there's, it's not necessarily objectively bigger, but it does feel like there's a lot more coming through, especially if you're chugging through an amp. How does that feel different to you playing through like that kind of sound compared to the superstition? Uh, well, I guess listening to the record, there's a lot of things that you would like to emulate live that there's just not enough instruments to be able to do. So like, I think the one thing that, I mean, I listened to it a bit ago just uh, before we started doing this and the fact that it sounds like 
either it's been doubled an octave higher or it's been played on a 12 string or I don't really know how it was, but that sort of, um, that sort of really high up rather than the synth part. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a synth rather layered up on top? I think so. Yeah. Well, I'm very quite aware of that. And I know that that's not there or present when I'm playing it, but I also think how, how you serve up the, the riff, for want of a better phrase, like I don't play it open like that with the D chord. Um, I kind of play it around the seventh fret where the sort of fifth fret D chord would be. Um, and then kind of do it in a sort of... So I guess I'm in A, a, a chord shape territory um, because for me it's more important to hear the riff played with some sort of difference so when you hear the original it's very continuous there's not very many gaps there's no mutes there's no like scuffs or palm mutes or anything like that it's all very that's fine you can do it like that and it works but to me it just sounds better as Chugs and palm mutes, and maybe that's the Metallica in me coming out, or whatever. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, when I'm playing it, I definitely think like there's space to be filled, especially if it's a small group like bass, drums, and guitar. So you've got all the chords, and you've got to put all that together. So chunking yeah, I mean, as much as possible. It's it's funny though. I think there's there's a lot of responsibility on the other guys in the band. So it's it's not all about the the guitar player in that song. If the bass player is not playing something rather than just the D and the A or what have you, you know, it's like you need more movement in it to inspire like the yeah. guitar to play more sort of thing. Cause in the, in the verse, you know, we're just chugging on open chords really, aren't we? There's nothing really to say about it, but then so no, it's, it's not really the sort of more complicated thing where you can do anything other than just play the chords, you know, bar chords, B minor and A and what have you. And then, and then back to the main riff again. So it's it's quite a strange one that. I mean, I have had, I did get a, a question from a, a lead guitar player. I was in a four piece band. So I was singing, I was playing what I would usually play. And then there was another guitarist who would put extra bits on top. And he said, why did you cut me off in the solo? I was like, what solo? <laughs> There's none in the original, yeah. I'm just like, what, what do you mean the solo? It's like, oh, at the end of the song. It's like, oh, there's a solo at the end of the song. You know, I don't hear that. I just... It, Bands do it just to fill, fill out another I guess minute, it's that they? sort of... That really kind of high F sharp or whatever it is. And I don't hear that as, right, now it's the guitarist's turn to show off. It's like, well, he just played that note because it sounded good. So we'll just play around the chord progression four times and then end, shall we? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's move on to another subject, which is uh, your perfect pitch and the fact that some records are not all in perfect pitch. Um, nowadays, a lot of things are computer perfect and everything's tuned to within an inch of its life. But sometimes bands would detune. So a classic one would be tuned down to E flat, like a lot of bands did, which gives the strings like a bit of a looser flavor, um, a bit um, easier to play, it's a bit easier on the singer and things maybe sounds a little bit darker. 
but not all records were perfect like in E or E flat. So there's some records which you mentioned um, we we're talking earlier where the tuning isn't quite um, perfect and how that's affected your enjoyment and perception of those songs. So yeah. one you mentioned oh, was the... Def Leppard. Yeah, the, the tune was Fooling. Um, I forget which album it's on. Is it Pyromania? I don't know. My memory's pretty poor on that. But the, the little A minor riff. And then it'd be like, it'd go up to the, I think it's the verse that is kind of in tune to, say, 440 hertz. And then as it goes up to... Um, like it's a D minor. Um, um, but like in that, the chorus is like, it's very slightly sharp. So like when you're playing along to it, you very much notice it. But when you're just listening to it, you probably notice it, but it's not really a problem because the problem is now all your strings are out of tune for this section. That's the, the, the issue. That's the bugbear. I would have thought that would have been a bugbear for anyone, regardless of perfect pitch status. Um, but it because I can hear it, I guess I'm now aware of it and it's on my radar, whereas maybe someone who doesn't have it might not have noticed it and therefore is unaware of it and therefore is unaware of the problem, maybe. I don't know. It's a rare problem to have, even among uh, good musicians. That... Yeah, I mean, like we were discussing earlier as well, like most... Most people tend to tend to think that something being out of tune is is a problem for people with perfect pitch. But I would say straight back, if something's out of tune, does it not annoy you as well? Like, I mean, if I was to that's horrible. Yeah, objectively bad. Objectively bad, whether you've got... Per- it doesn't matter whether you know it's a, a D-flat or not, you know, it's it's just out of tune. So I think that's the first thing I would probably comment on, is that it doesn't make me any different to anyone without it. It's, it's still annoying. <laughs> if it sounds annoying, it's annoying. It doesn't matter whether you know what it is, but does it affect me if a song, like you were saying, is halfway between, say, E and E-flat? Well... Not really. It's not really an annoyance. It's not like it makes me upset for the afternoon, but I notice it. And the only way I notice it is because my brain will, it's like having a guitar tuner switched on permanently. You just kind of see like notes flash up in your head going (laughs) A flat. And I mean, even when like stood outside, you know, um, maybe having a smoke with a friend or something and someone passes wind or something, I'll be like, I know exactly what note it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, actually, you know, making sounds out of your own body and being able to tell what actual note it was, that's the only thing that you can do that doesn't involve another sound source, like a guitar or a, a window or a glass or you know something that resonates. And to wrap up that sort of section, I would say the... The, 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 the fart joke humour, it seems to be funnier when you say it's a flat note. Yeah. G flat is funnier than F sharp. Have you seen that meme? It's um, a little video clip where someone's like recorded it and he's like farted a B flat major seven. A ma- major seven chord, I think it was. Yeah. But the thing is, it was objectively. But then the question there is like, well, how long has he been recording his farts for? 
because <laughs> like, that was recorded and he must have like had a whole backlog and catalog and he's finally like all oh, that was like uh, almost in tune and then he's finally picked one like how long was that project going it, on it probably took a lot longer than we would like to admit i reckon but i'm glad that they did it and turned it into that song but i think more more recently uh my perfect pitch has been trying to dig in a way at like I guess stuff that maybe Steve Vai was trying to do on on like Passion and Warfare and bit Alien Love Secrets where he was he did the baby was it Yago Yayo Gak I think it was wasn't it Yayo Gak and he'd emulate the the baby's vocal whatever it was perfectly and so I know that he's got that sort of immense level of perception of between all the semitones all that kind of bit in between like the blues curls and that um whereas for me i noticed myself having a conversation with my dad and you know when you question something and you go hmm? and i was like mm-hmm. and I like, like kind of analyzed the two notes from the lowest to the highest and i'd formed an imperfect cadence in my voice which was quite fitting because i was asking a question that needed a response <laughs> right. and do you find and also so- sorry carry on and I was going to say, I think I, when you invert it and you go, hmm, it's like, mm-hmm, or whatever, that was like not the right notes. But like on some times, you might be lucky to hit a 5-1 on a 1-5. <laughs> nice, okay. proper cadence. Which so. then, you know, was a nice little surprise for me, but I, I don't know how you go about working that out unless you knew that you'd hummed a B and then gone up to an F sharp or whatever it was. And you wouldn't probably have the patience to go and fetch, fetch a guitar tuner and hum it into it and, you know, whatever. Are there some accents that really trigger you? Because there's um, some people like have a real rising inflection at the end and it can sound very, um, like, insecure and, like, yeah, oh, so we went to like- the shops and we did this and, like, yeah, so, like, I do this and this is my job. Like, do you, are you thinking, like, oh, God, that's so many like, minor thirds rising up and or is it just... It's just annoying no. objectively. And... <laughs> it, it's different objectively, isn't it? Um, I, I would say I've not really... I've tried to keep intervals and notes out of my speech for as long as possible because I don't want to know. I don't want to know whether I'm generally speaking on an F or speaking on an A flat someday or... I don't even know what note I'm saying now until I actually go, mm, there's a beat, right? So when I... <laughs> Think about like I'm talking and I'm it's like the tune is switched off, but as soon as there's a musical element to it, right? I I can kind of hear it like I've got a glass of water on here and there's there's that C sharp there going as well. Um and it's because it can be because it's on all the time, it gets quite irritating. It's like someone shining a red laser beam in your eye from across the street through a window it's going to get irritating eventually and yeah it's interesting again because it's um it sounds similar to the kind of synesthesia thing because it's it's there and it's your perception that's um uh, like would you turn it off if you could or would you like to be able to selectively turn it on off say during conversations Mm, that is that is the epic question of all time because because it's a skill i feel it needs to be practiced to be maintained and I've, I, you said you watched a lot of the Rick Beato stuff as well and Adam Neely. They did a talk on Perfect Pitch about how it goes away in your 60s and 70s and stuff. Yeah. 
which I'm obviously quite interested in. And obviously I responded to it by going, that's a load of bullshit. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. I think, I think what's more likely is, is that as you get older, you stop being asked to, pra- to go through all those rituals of remembering the notes. And you might not have those songs on as much that triggered your sense of note. Um, and so like I feel it already that my perfect pitch is nowhere near as strong as it was when we were at the Guitar Institute because I was analysing songs and tunes and everything, practising so much each day that the cogs were well-oiled and moving really fast. But now that you know, we're into adult working life and maybe don't practise quite as much as we did back then, there's more space and a lot of time between hearing those sounds. So in a way, when I do make a fart sound, it makes sense for me to analyse it and find out what note it was um, just to keep the skill going. Cool. Um, and do you hear um, around your daily life, like supermarket beeps and like chimes on PA announcements? Do you listen to those and think, oh, yeah, that's a B flat or like going through a door like bing bong. And like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> always. Um, I'll, I'll play through some of those things that we did earlier. Like, um, is it the doorbells? Usually D major. Um, it's usually a doorbell. Um, there's also the... The more darker intervals of the bank ATM when it's telling you to take your credit card out. That's always a tritone because everyone knows a tritone scary and it's an instruction. Take Sense the thing of urgency, before. yeah. Um, there's also the... Um, C6 or major triad, which is the... Train now approaching platform one is blah 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 from any train station and even in my car anyone with a Toyota sort of almost sports car from about 2000 to 2005 uh, knows that when you put the the car in reverse it makes a G which is whenever you're rehearsing so there are sounds everywhere and even the the humble uh, was it the Nokia text messages like from the 3210 was the F sharp on the 14th fret <laughs> and, then the, and then if I was to if I had a 24th fret on this E flat tuned guitar it would be get rid of the B flat sorry I can hear that's a high E 24th fret uh, a normal e-tuned guitar or the fifth fret harmonic or whatever. So yeah, they're just like instilled in my in my brain because I know what they are and they've been labelled. So you kind of remember them once you've labelled them, rather than them just being a sound that just trickles out of your head. Um, but I do remember the time when Perfect Pitch solidified in my head. I did a test in year ten with the music teacher at GCSE. And he stood behind, he stood in front of the piano and I stood behind it so I couldn't see what he was playing. And he played me about 20 different notes, really high, really low in the middle. Yep, all of them, no problem. And I remember walking home from school with the Walkman on and, and then, well, maybe not with the Walkman on actually, walking home, hearing a song in my head, trying to wonder whether it was in the right key from the record. And then 
once I'd get home and check whether was I right, I'd try it again the next day and try and make sure I was absolutely right. So then you're kind of aligning that sort of sense of this sound is that note. And then once it's in, it's in to me. So it, it was quite quite a useful thing to develop. Cool. Been awesome catching up with you again, Steve. Um, do you want to give us any social media links, a uh, place where people can find your music and any videos maybe? <laughs> I'd love to, but it's not really anywhere at the moment other than I am on YouTube. Um, if you put my name in. I'll put the link down um, in the description, yeah. Yeah, and there is an Instagram page. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not massively uh, on there a lot. So yeah. That's how things are with that at the moment. <laughs> cool, yeah, and we'll definitely have you on again because um, Steve has been doing an album for quite a long time and um, it's quite an epic story behind that and um, it'd be a very good insight into the creative process as well because everyone works differently, but then there's also the technological challenges of getting it done, working with different people and probably battling with perfectionism a little bit as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah i've done that the same like i had um on rep i some of the guitar parts are really difficult so i had to do loads of practice and i could tell that my technique was better on some parts than others so then i had to re-record all the early parts as well even though they were fine but they didn't sparkle quite as much as those later harmonies so that's it's a it's a real thing it's a real thing cool well thanks for coming on and uh we'll speak to you soon i appreciate it yeah we'll take care outro music Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube and do let us know what you think in the comments. If you like to earn money with no effort at all simply by having your phone on, the data is being sold around the world anyway and the Tapestry app helps you take a cut. Link in the show notes.